Good morning. Good to see you. Hey, we're back in 1 Corinthians. I wanted to return to uh, chapter 6 and <clears throat> pick up a little bit um, that I think is very encouraging. And I thought it was uh, of God that Brian brought up the notion of our identity in the context of problems because Paul appeals to their identity, the, the identity of the Corinthians in Christ as he specifically addresses some of the problems that he takes up in chapter six, even throughout the letter, but there are these telltale markers or indicators of what he's pointing to. And you just have to realize that he had taught them a great deal in his correspondence with them, in his visits. In fact, uh, we have two letters from Paul to the Corinthians, which reflects even more correspondence, a letter from them to him, to which he's responding even here in this chapter. And, uh, and then a letter that he sent to the Corinthians, which is lost to us. And uh, in that, he taps in to things that he has taught them before, who they are in Jesus Christ. When we were <clears throat> last in 1 Corinthians 6, I spoke to you about the subject uh, of Paul's expression, do you not know that? Do you not know that? And then he goes on to reveal, to explain, to expose them to things again as a remembrance of things that are true. And I asked you how many times you might imagine Paul used that expression. I myself thought it would be pretty frequent and numerous. If 13 letters that we have from the Apostle Paul that have survived, I mean, I don't know how many total words that is. It's a lot of words. He uses, do you not know that, 11 times. 11 times in the body of his 13 letters. How many times does he use it in 1 Corinthians alone? 10 times. Of the 11, 10 times in 1 Corinthians. How many times in chapter 6? Six times. He wants them to remember. He wants them to look again and see who they really are in Jesus Christ. And each time he uses, do you not know that? He's touching on things that have bearing upon their identity in Jesus Christ. Paul thinks that truth transforms might be an intellectual exercise that would be profitable for you if you were just to imagine what would this world look like? What would my life look like if I didn't know what I know because I have the Bible? If I didn't know what I know, what I see, what I understand about myself, about others, about the world, about the purpose and trajectory of history if I didn't have the Bible. And if God didn't intervene in the person, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, 
and what he accomplished in his life and on the cross and in his resurrection and what it has to do with my destiny, my place, and what is meaningful, what counts, what matters. I dare say everything would be changed. Everything would be changed. Not a thing that you take for granted would not be touched and changed if it weren't for the Bible and the truths of what God has done in history and what it means for you and me and our lives. Paul believes that truth transforms. Don't be conformed to this world, he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or demonstrate or show what the will of God is. That it is good, acceptable, and perfect. You can be a living, walking, talking billboard for the truth. But not, not if you take all your cues and signals from the world. And that's basically the issue in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is addressing some specific issues. In effect, he's saying, you're better than that. You're better than that because of who you are in Jesus Christ. You're better than that. Way better than that. So live up to your identity in Christ. And he gives us a number of identity markers. In 1 through 8, in particular, the word brother. And in effect, in these eight verses, dealing with taking brother to brother in court, he says, live up to your true identity in Christ. It's not who you are in Christ to get your way the world's way. It's, it's not becoming of you. It's like you don't even know your own dignity, your, your own rank. When you just get your way, the world's way, you use their methods You act just as though you aren't who you are. That's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. And then in verses 9 through 14, he says, in effect, you've forgotten that you are a son 
And the word son is not used, but the word inheritance is used. And he says, such were some of you, those unrighteous who will not inherit. And he explains, you are righteous by virtue of what Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, what God has done for you. I mean, the, the whole majesty of the triune Godhead is brought to bear in these verses. He says, such were some of you. You are a son. You have an inheritance. And yet you, he says in verse 12 and 13, you, you, you want your rights. You, you stand on your petty Roman rights. Roman rights that are for the privileged, the 1%. You say, it's permitted. And he draws their attention back to who they really are in Christ. He said, you didn't, you didn't have any rights. We talked about this last time at, at some length when we were in chapter 6. You were under allegations. By the way, in verse 9 and 10, he, he goes through a list. And he says, such were some of you. So what happened? How'd you get out? How is it you're free? How is it you're not in jail? <laughs> not a slave. Not exiled. Those were the kinds of things that happened when you were guilty. Losing all your rights, all your privileges. Oh, that's right. You were washed. You were made holy. You were justified. You were vindicated. Were you, were you just? Were you righteous? No, I was actually guilty. You know how we say it. As all get out. No, by virtue of the identity that you have in Jesus Christ. You were vindicated. You were called just and released. Don't talk to me about rights, Paul says. Does it, does it help? Does it do good? You're, you use your rights for yourself. And yet God did everything for you and you didn't deserve a bit of it. You talk about food for the stomach and the stomach for food. He says, how can you want to be enslaved again? How, do you, how is it you want to be under bondage? He says, I won't be in bondage or enslaved, dominated by anyone. I'm trying to pull on all the different possible translations that you might be looking at in verse 13. When he talks about the resurrection, he's... 
he's emphasizing the fact that none of that's going to count anyway. It's not going to matter. It's the resurrected life. And then in verses 15 through 20, he picks up the fact that your identity is indissolubly linked in the most powerful way with Jesus Christ himself. And all, all through this is, is this issue of their status and their rank and their rights. Using that to get the advantage of a brother in court. Using that to justify their advantage. It's permitted or it's lawful. The body made, that's a philosophical chatter. Paul will have none of that. He says, you're, you're talking worldly stuff to me. And I'm trying to say, you have to see yourself as you are in Christ. And in this last section, 15 through 20, he says, don't you realize what's going on when you're engaged in sexual immorality? He'd already talked about a range of things from adultery to prostitution and homosexual interaction. And by the way, it was often the husband, the lawfully, lawfully wedded husband who was engaged in all those things. And so now he, he says, don't, don't you understand what, what, what indissoluble things are taking place because of who you are? He says, we talk about the two fleshes becoming one flesh. Oh, in our society, we talk about casual sex as though it were casual. They don't ever show the next day, the morning after. They don't show the emotional wreckage. They don't, they don't show any of the tragedy. It is, it's just carefree, casual there's no sense of identity involved with it. Paul says biblically, he says the two become one flesh. But then he goes on to emphasize, remember he says in verse 15, do you not know? And if you follow that into verse 16, he says you are one with Christ in the spirit. By the way, in all of my reading over the years, um, I like to read more widely than the New Testament. In fact, in the last two years, at least two, I, almost every day I do some reading in Greek or Roman authors in that period of about uh, 200 years on either side of the New Testament because I want to immerse myself in the language and also the social and political context. And it really does bring things to life. And the word spirit, pneuma, or sometimes pronounced pneuma, the word spirit is not just air. It's never just air. Like right now, have you noticed the air? 
This is not spirit. This air. This is just air. But when this air starts moving, when it's dynamic, then it is properly called spirit. Or what we translate as spirit. That word which in the New Testament is translated spirit. Spirit, like, whoa, he's spirited? You wouldn't say that of something that's innate or just kind of flat. No, it's got some punch. And the word for gale or wind as in storm is always the word pneuma or pneuma. That one word which we translate spirit. Paul says, you are one with Christ in the spirit. So he's elevating their sense of identity and self-image. Let's look at this just a little more closely. Verses one through eight. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And remember last time I talked about the unrighteous. When I was reading this, I I thought, how many times does, does Paul speak about the unrighteous? I thought it would be like 25 times. Three times using this word. Three times. Two times right here. That's very important because he uses it right here of a corrupt justice system. And yet Roman law was the best there could be in the history of the world at the time. He says, do you dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you... Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. In other words, they don't believe. What, 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 they just don't trust? They don't have the capacity to believe? No, no, he's saying, they don't see the world the way you see the world. They don't see you the way you see you. They don't see Jesus Christ the way you see Jesus Christ. They don't see your other brother the way you see your other brother. And on and on and on. They are believers. They don't have the world view that you now have. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
I don't know if you've ever pondered Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. If you just kind of pondered that, you know I'm sure what I'm talking about. It's, it's the two most important verses in the whole world in a way, or it could lay claim to it. It's when God says, I'm going to create humankind in our image. Just think about that for a moment. How that, that's had an effect on, on justice in the sense of rights and dignity and that, that people, you, the, even the person you don't like, the people that you despise, everyone in the world from the beginning of history has a dignity, a worth, a value. And in a sense, an equality in the eyes of God. It's in, the big, it's in the charters of our country. The foundation of our constitution, our bill of rights. Do you realize in the Roman world, there was nothing like that? They didn't think that you were an equal. You were an inferior. Some people were less than human. Really, women were less than males. And those who were, if you will, in the 1%. And by and large, they called brothers, brothers. Not other people, brothers. And so Paul starts talking about brothers. Why would you go to court and submit the verdict on your little affairs let alone big ones, to an unrighteous judge, a judge who doesn't even believe, doesn't even see you as you really are, doesn't even think of you as a brother. You're brothers, but when you go to court like that, you're treating your brother, your equal in Christ, somebody who has a value that God places upon him, that changes the way you see him, how could you go to court in which that guy doesn't see you as brothers or equals at all? How would you leverage your status, your rank against a brother? When you are in Christ, you have a virtue and a worth that you didn't even deserve. Really, wouldn't it be better, he says, if you just took the hit? I mean, what could it really cost you? What pride could you lose when you consider who you are in Christ? And then he picks up this same issue of the unrighteous in verse 9. Here's what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They have no inheritance. But you have an inheritance. That's the point. You are heirs. The unrighteous are not heirs. 
That's the point he's making. Don't be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Well, I I mean idolaters. That seems so foreign to us. But you remember when we looked at the, the layout of the city of Corinth, the archaeological layout that we have, how many temples, you remember that? The place was peppered with magnificent temples. Everywhere they went, there were temples. The whole calendar of the year and life in the city was built around and upon idolatry. How could you escape it? They were immersed in it. Just like we are often immersed in our culture. But he says, you know better. And adulterers. (laughs) Husbands were the adulterers. And they were also involved in homosexual acts. Husbands. Their wives were faithful to them. And they were faithful to their families. I cannot even begin to describe the recreational exploration that was the sexual life of a healthy Roman male. And talk about power. These are the things Paul is addressing. And then listen to what else he goes on to. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor reviled. These are all things. The Corinthians, Paul has to address later in this letter that they're getting drunk at the Lord's table. I mean, like if we had real wine here and you came in and I'm kind of looped. We'll talk about that more. And the after dinner parties. That was a privileged thing. And when, the, when a young man became an adult and, and earned the toga, he was admitted to these after dinner parties. Wives were excluded. And they bring in the piping girls and they, the wine would flow freely and then all kinds of break out. So when Paul mentions here this expression of privileges and rights and gluttony and drunkenness, he's he's really hitting at the culture of their lives. And he's saying, don't you, you, you're going to, they don't have an inheritance. These activities are, are the work of people who don't know Jesus Christ, a life that hasn't been transformed by Jesus Christ. He's not trying to threaten them. He's, in a sense, trying to shame them into realizing who they really are. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Do you know Cicero or Cicero, depending on how you pronounce it, was Rome's, truly Rome's greatest orator and lawyer. Here's what he says. Listen to this. He says, if anyone thinks that young men, those who have 
received the toga of adulthood, of manhood. If anyone thinks that the young, this would, how, how, how many of you, let me see a show of hands, wanted to get a driver's license? Were you excited? Could you not wait to get your driver's license? What if you couldn't drive because you were a Christian? Oh man, what a bummer. This was like getting your driver's license. Now you're really, yeah, great, I was 13. Yeah, you're an adolescent, you're an adult now. Ho-hum, but you get your driver's license, now we're talking. If anyone thinks that the young men should be forbidden association, even with prostitutes, boys or girls, he is certainly very stern. But he is also in disagreement, not only with the permissiveness. Now, we use that in a negative sense, but in other words, the freedoms, the liberties, the permissiveness of this century, but even with the customs of our ancestors. When was such a thing not done, not allowed? When was that which, listen to this, when was that which is now permitted, now lawful, not permitted or not lawful? These were the rights of those of class and rank in the Roman world. These were not things scribbled like graffiti on the walls of Pompeii by the poor class, by the working class, by slaves, by nobodies. These were rights and privileges which distinguished your betterness, that you are superior to others. And Paul is having none of it because we've all been elevated to a whole new level of rank and class in Christ Jesus. And it ought to change the way we see ourselves. It ought to change the way we see others. And if it changes that, it ought to change the way we behave. And then he says, it's not who you are in Christ to get your own way, the world's way, to get and use your own rights, the world's way, to put then in verses 15 through 20, to put your body to use the world's way. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? They just gotten finished saying this. This was a, a proverbial kind of saying, a slogan. The stomach's for the body, the body's for, you know, the stomach's for food, food's for the stomach. And now he comes back with, listen, (laughs) don't you know, your bodies are members of Christ. In other words, you are a member of Christ. You, you are in Christ And then he goes on to say, you are one with him in the spirit. These are profound things that I realize I've I've read over myself over the years, but I'm, I'm trying to bring out how profound this is, how extraordinary. 
It takes time to develop your image in Christ when you are constantly being shaped by the culture and the images that others try to fit you into. And, 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 and we freely engage on that level in our culture and we'll never break out as long as we're being shaped by those ideas of worth and value, whose significance, who can make a difference, and who can't. Who's worth giving your time and attention to, and who's a waste of your time and attention. That's the economy of our culture, and it's no different than the Roman world. And Paul is busting this to pieces based on good theology. Theology does make a difference. I know we, oh, that heady stuff. That heady stuff is truth. And if it's truth to us, it will transform. I want to talk just a minute about your inheritance. Now, I've talked about brothers our identity is brothers in Christ. I understand. This, I, I'm, I'm not <clears throat> unaware of the importance of words. And when I use brother, I'm using it because Paul used it. And, and I realize that in our culture, it's kind of like, well, yeah, but I'm a woman or, or I'm a girl. I'm, I'm, I'm a sister. I'm not a brother. But Paul says, you are brothers. Just like he says, you are sons. Because he's talking about the economy of ranking and importance and value in that world, the Roman world. A brother, a son, and he's saying, you are. You are. You are heirs. You have an inheritance. You are actually members of Christ. To try and put this in perspective, I mean, I, when we see, twice he talks about inheriting the kingdom of God in verse 9 and 10. Twice. He's already distinguished us from the unrighteous. So we are heirs. And it just so happened, I've been reading in, uh, the, both of these men are contemporaries of Paul, Plutarch and Petronius, or Petronius. And in fact, Petronius, or Petronius, depending on how you emphasize it, he died in Rome in the 60s when Paul was there, under Nero. But let me just tell you, I've, I've, I've been reading the compl- everything Plutarch has written, and he has written, a, I guess you'd like a book or an essay on um, he calls it affection for offspring, because he's taking on those who argue that parents don't really love their kids. Whatever you associate with their affection, their joy at the birth of children, there are those who say the only thing that makes parents happy about having kids is that their kids are going to be able to take care of them or bury them. In other words, parents, if you see emotion 
at the birth of a child, that emotion is really, finally, got a kid who can do something for me. And Plutarch says, that is ludicrous. That is crazy. And he writes this whole essay arguing that God has created us to have that affection for our offspring. And he talks about the natural world and animal world. And then he goes to talking about parenthood, particularly mothers and then fathers. And his the nail in the coffin in his argument is rich fathers. He says, perhaps the joy that you witness of a rich father at the birth of a son is really false because he's only happy that now finally he'll have somebody as an heir. In other words, he'll have somebody to give his property and money, his wealth. Of course, this is all tongue-in-cheek because Plutarch goes on to say, we all know how hard it is for the wealthy father to find anyone willing to accept his money and property. (laughs) And (laughs) And then he says, he says, if we could count the sand on the shore, the dust of the earth, the birds, the feathers of all the birds of all species... The sum of the sand, the dust, and the feathers would not amount to the number of people who are seeking inheritances. Why? Because it's so rare. My mom and dad have already passed. I I think we got, I don't remember who it was from, I think we got $3,000. Some of you think, well, maybe something will come my way. That'll be nice, you know? A little help. Some of us, we don't think the way the Romans did. And those under, in the Roman world. It'd be like one, one percent would, when they got an inheritance, it was an inheritance they were living on before their kids. They never, never had to work a day in their lives. They didn't have to have a profession. The rest... The slaves, the freedmen, the laborers, the soldiers, colonists, hucksters, prostitutes, which was a very large profession, as you can imagine, in such poverty. And when jobs and professions were not, talk about the rate of people without jobs and the dangers of trying to make it in that world. among all those struggling with the hard facts of life in the Roman Empire, an inheritance was a fantasy. They were called legacy hunters. Plutarch continues with his argument. He says, he says you've heard of the father who had 50 daughters. 50 daughters! But he said... And again, facetiously, he would have had more heirs if he didn't even have a child. Why? Because of all the hucksters and people that are out there trying to to ingratiate themselves, to brown nose, to suck up to those who are rich. 
If they don't have heirs, then they're prime for picking. I can get in there and they called them parasites. They fawned on them. They told them whatever they wanted to hear. They laughed at all their jokes. They told them how fantastic they were. Everything they said, that's the best or the funniest thing I've ever heard. Plutarch says, it's, he says it's the rich man without an heir that doesn't have a child that has unimaginable power. That's because people will go to extraordinary lengths to win that person, that rich man's favor in hopes of getting an inheritance. In fact, he says, we all know rich men who had many friends and much honor until they had a child because having a child made them friendless and powerless. In fact, Petronius tells us in one of his novels of a a, a troop headed up by the hero and they come to the city, this powerful uh, city and they meet a farmer on the outskirts. This is what he writes. Oh, travelers, the farmer said, if you are merchants, find a different project and seek some other means of livelihood. In other words, just keep on moving. If, however, you are sophisticated people and can lie your heads off on every occasion, you're headed straight toward profit. In this city, the study of liberal arts finds no glory. Oratory has no place. Probity and conscience win no praise, bring no gain. All the people you will see belong to one of the two classes, They are either legacy hunters, in other words, people trying to dupe others out of of an inheritance, or the targets of legacy hunters. No one in this city brings up children because anyone who has heirs never gets an invitation to dinner. He's excluded from public entertainments and barred from society together. Like some skulking criminal, he hides at home. But the men who've never married and have no near relatives, they hold the highest offices. And he continues. What does Paul say about you? Do you know that in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, he says, you are sons. See, it would be different if he'd said, you are sons and daughters. I know that would mean more to us. But he's he's attributing the highest privilege you are sons. In other words, that is your status. You are heir. He says, if you are sons, you are heirs. Heirs. You have an inheritance. And then he says this extraordinary thing, and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. I hope that you'll ponder that this week. Brian brought up the kinds of problems that we can encounter. I don't know what your problems are going to be this week. Maybe they, you already know. Maybe some, some of them are in process. Handle it. Deal with it. Love, forgive, show mercy. Exercise your wisdom. Be patient, long-suffering. Whatever you're called to do, do it as one who has the vital power of God in your life, the Holy Spirit, as one who is 
indissolubly joined with Jesus Christ, who is an heir, who is an equal. That's powerful stuff. That's truth that will transform. Will you stand? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank, we think we've gotten our heads around your grace, your love, your goodness, and then it's notched up again, trying to grasp how it is that you have been so good to us in Jesus Christ. But let it compel us, Lord, to be your child, to live and serve and love in your name. Thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray this. And all of God's people said, God bless you.